Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hi there, I'm Randad Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Hey, everybody, it's that time again for Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. And this week on The Breakdown, we are in the downtown L.A. office of Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti. That's right. We're here with the mayor sitting on his made-in Los Angeles furniture. And we're going to jump right into our interview with the mayor. Welcome to The Breakdown. Thank you. Great to be with you, Scott and Marisa. So, you know, usually at the top of the show, we talk about, uh, Marisa and I just talk about what's in the news. But you've been in the news, uh, and the city's been in the news. So let's let's start right there. Um, um, there was a delegation uh, from the Trump administration in town this week uh, meeting with some of your homeless policy folks. First of all, tell us about that meeting. Um, how did it come about and what were you expecting? Yeah, who called you? Uh, nobody called us. We found out about it and then reached out saying, if you want to see some things of what Los Angeles is doing, let us know. And they did take us up on that. But it came a little bit as a surprise. But I assume it followed on the president's comments about homelessness for the first time when he was in Japan saying how clean their streets were mm. uh, versus streets in our cities. Um, we later did research and found out that Japan ended its homelessness um, crisis by federal government help that housed every one of those homeless seniors. There was a lot actually in Japan at one point and giving them money. So we had an idea or two. But I actually, uh, at the time, instead of hitting him back with those comments, said, hey, if you're serious about saving lives, this is under your watch, this is under all of our watches, uh, come and see some of the things we're doing because we certainly could use the federal help who's been kind of missing in action to too many places. And so those comments included sort of threats that the government might come into San Francisco and L.A. and clear the streets. I mean, do you did you get any sense if that those were serious or what they were talking about in terms of authority to do that kind of thing? No, like like many things out of this White House, I think it was just to stir people up. Uh, there's a constitution that doesn't allow you to just sweep people up and move them. Um, but the folks that were here yesterday... Uh, when an article came out in the Washington Post claiming that they're going to sweep people up, this, that, and the other, said, no, we actually just want to help, if that's federal land or federal uh, uh, resources, to help us have more shelters even than we're building now, that's welcome. But if it's just a political stunt and a political game to bash California, to bash quote-unquote liberal mayors, we've seen this playbook before, um, and it doesn't result in anything. What could they do that they haven't done? I think, you know, if he declared a state of emergency at the national level on homelessness, you could cut through a lot of the federal environmental um, uh, red tape that holds back on things like VA land, where we're, we are working very well with the VA to build homeless housing and a shelter um, in the West Los Angeles Veterans Administration property. They could bring resources. And I wrote a letter that I asked them to hand to the administration officials to hand to Mr. Trump. Um, that said four or five things specifically that he could do. Expanding Section 8 vouchers, one out of four people in this country and one out of eight in Los Angeles who qualifies for federal housing assistance gets it. So it's essentially a lottery. Um, but unlike SSDI or food stamps, when we qualify, everybody gets it. For some reason, in this country with housing, 
They say, okay, a few of you do, and it's just going to be random luck. And also, it's hard to get Section 8 folks into housing. No question. It's a twofer. One, you need to get more uh, vouchers, and we can use those. But obviously, you also have to build more housing. So the, the statewide conversation about building more, I'm very proud of what my city is doing. We're building 20% of the state's new housing, period, and we're only 10% of the population. So we need to get people into those units, too. I wanted to ask you about that. I know you backed legislation earlier this year that would have made it easier to build more dense, affordable housing near transit. The city's actually trying to do that anyway, and you guys mm -hmm. are being sued over it. Smaller city mayors are not backing that legislation. I think we've seen this real difference between the bigger urban areas and more suburban areas. In fact, it was a L.A. County uh, or senator who killed the SB mm -hmm. 50 bill I'm referring to. I just wonder, like, what kind of conversations are you trying to have with your counterparts in other sure. cities or around the state to try to bring them along? Because it seems like that is the crux of some of the challenges here at home. Yeah, you know, what counts as suburban and urban um, is sometimes uh, unfortunately conflated with what is big and small. We have small towns that are part of very large cities. Here in Los Angeles County, we are 10 million people that is a large city of 88 cities. Now, they might be some small in population, but they're part of a 10 million person city, really, if we're honest, an 18 million person city with five counties with no farmland in between. It is a contiguous, continuous city. So uh, one of the things that I've said is here in LA County, we're only 40% of the total population in LA City, but we're building 75% of the housing. Similarly, 20% in the state and only 10% of the state's population. Um, cities can't be barnacles on the big city whales. They have to actually do their fair share. As we project growth, you can't just say to regional authorities or the state, we project in the next decade no new housing is needed because it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy that that town right next to you know, the big city has nothing built. Those people are stuck in traffic. They see homelessness. So we have to really do this together. And LA City, I think, is leading the way. Our transit-oriented communities, which is about half the housing being built, says that we're, we're we have true big transit stops. I didn't back SB 50, though I didn't oppose it because I was trying to work with the author to make it better. Um, we have been able to hit, hit those goals without a one-size-fits-all approach of saying every place has to lose single-family home neighborhoods. You can put that density close to where you're investing billions of dollars in transit, cut traffic, cut air pollution, and address a housing crisis. Just coming back to the Trump administration visit, I'm wondering when you found out they were coming or after they left, did you talk with the governor? Did the governor call you? Have you talked with other elected officials about like a strategy? Absolutely. I was in touch with London Breed, uh, the mayor of, of San Francisco. We talked yesterday. Uh, the governor and I were texting back and forth yesterday, as well as uh, talking to Daryl Steinberg, the mayor of, of Sacramento. We all have seen this playbook of kind of games, whether it's around sanctuary cities, whether it's around homelessness, whether it's around, um, you know, some of our uh, inclusion, gender equity stuff. We get bashed by Washington all the time for standing up for American values. But the threats usually don't come with much of anything. It's a lot of bark and no bite. Flipping that around, though, this is under President Trump's watch. This is, he said homelessness started two years ago. Now, I said to the press, I reassured him it didn't start when he became president, nor should we just blame him. Nor did it start when any of us were the governor, the mayor. This has been decades in the making. We've seen between state and federal cuts, just on affordable housing in LA, about $20 billion worth of housing that we could not build in the last decade because of the end of redevelopment and federal cuts. Imagine how many fewer people would be homeless if we had just had the level for affordable housing 10 years ago. So it's really on everybody uh, to solve this. And, you know, I hope that it wasn't a stunt. I hope it was a legitimate effort to uh, do something, but I'll believe it when I see it. What does your gut tell you? 
uh, that it was probably a stunt. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? It's history, it's people, it's unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. You're listening to KQED Public Radio. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos, and we're sitting in the mayor's office in Los Angeles with his honor, Eric Garcetti. Uh, let's talk about you a little yeah. bit more. You, uh, you, uh, enough about me. Let's talk about me. Let's talk yes, about, exactly. Let's, let's, about you. let's talk about your family. Um, so your dad, of course, Gil Garcetti, was the uh, district attorney uh, when you were a young man, I think. Uh, yeah, right after college. Yeah. It was, was DA. The, his office prosecuted uh, OJ. There were other, some other big high-profile issues. But going back even further, your dad's side of the family has a really interesting heritage. Yes. Uh, tell us a little bit about that and the Mexican revolution Revolutionary uh, person in your in your uh, in your family as well. So so I joke I'm the I'm the Jutino hiding in plain sight. I think a lot of people <laughs> think I'm just Italian American and I'm proud of those roots. I think I'm eight percent Italian. But really the simplest way to understand my cultural heritage is my father's side of the family. Both his mother and father spoke Spanish first, came from Mexico, and their parents came from Mexico. My mother's side is Jewish. So I'm this kind of. Uh, uh, kosher burrito, uh, as we used to sell across the street here from City Hall. A mix of these two cultures, both immigrant, refugee uh, past. My grandfather was the most recent to come to America when he was one-year-old baby, carried in the arms of his mother, my great-grandmother, during the Mexican Revolution. My great-grandfather was killed. She carried him over the border um, with resonance to today, as I see children and babies being separated from right. their parents realizing that if this country had somehow separated them or not allowed them in, I wouldn't be here today. But he fought in World War II, became a citizen, became a union barber. Um, my father was the first to graduate from college, grew up in South LA. My mom uh, was a generation ahead, though her parents grew up poor. Her father had great success as a suit manufacturer, was actually the tailor to President Johnson um, at one I point. I understand until he made until a political he, uh, statement. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up. So Harry Roth, who ran Lewis Roth clothes, uh, was lucky enough to become uh, President Johnson's tailor, but was opposed to the Vietnam War and had to make a decision, do I speak out about that and lose my best client, or do I stay quiet and stay as the tailor? Wasn't a tough choice. He spoke out, took out a full page ad in the New York Times saying, get out of Vietnam, don't run for re-election. My wife and I would like to contribute to your retirement financially. 
made national news, and obviously he didn't make another suit in the White House, but it really gave me that lesson you stand up for what you believe in. Well, I was going to say, I mean, it seems like obviously you have deep ties to both sides, but what mm -hmm. growing up, were you bar mitzvah? Were you speaking Spanish at home? Like, how did that sort of play out in your did childhood? Did you speak from the Torah mm -hmm. in Spanish? Yeah. Exactly, a Spanish <laughs> Ladino, I sometimes <laughs> joke it. Well, on Saturdays, I might have, you know, bagels and, and locks at home, and then Sundays at my, um, my grandparents' house, we'd have, you know, menudo and, and uh, Mexican food. I felt fluid in both. It just seemed normal. Um, I was raised in a pretty unreligious family, so I kind of came to Judaism myself later. My parents let me, by my choice, go to Jewish camp. I wasn't bar mitzvahed until I was an adult later on in life, um, and definitely now identify religiously as Jewish, um, but culturally felt Latino, spoke Spanish with my grandparents, okay. learned my accent from them, um, and felt their stories as a central part of who I am. I didn't have to pick between cultures, it was just who Eric Garcetti said he was. And a very LA story. Yes, absolutely. In that way. Um, so, and speaking of, I mean, your dad, even before he was district attorney, mm -hmm. was a prosecutor, you grew yes. up in that world. Um, this, you know, was the time of tough on crime laws and um, Rodney King and, and a lot of really uh, strife in LA and elsewhere. Yeah. I mean, how much of that did he bring home? Did he talk about his job? We, we talk, you know, he was a line prosecutor growing up. He wasn't really a politician. So people think I grew up with politics. He made a conscious decision, even though he and my mom were active in Eugene McCarthy's campaign for president in 1968 to not run for office because he had seen a great man's kind of family life fall apart. And he said, I'm not going to do that to my kids. So he waited till my sister and I were graduated from college. That said, of course, we talked about cases. He headed up the first consumer fraud uh, unit. He laid and did cases there and later on headed up the first unit going after cops for police brutality and public officials who crossed lines. So I grew up with an understanding that it was so important to hold everybody accountable. and. You know, it's funny looking back in those days, which were, the, especially in this state, tough on crime, three strikes. He was one of the few district attorneys to oppose three strikes. Oh, really? He was one of the few people who, when he saw the OJ trial, he said, I'm going to bring domestic violence to the forefront. And though the case didn't result in a victory, it really was the awakening in America about domestic violence being a serious crime. And he was one of the first DAs to say, let's invest in crime prevention, putting prosecutors out there to work with juveniles long before they entered the system so that they could be um, kept away from a lifetime of serving time. And so, you know, for me, yeah, we talked about it all the time, but he was a progressive prosecutor before people were talking that way. <laughs> if you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Scott Schaefer, and I'm here with Marisa Lagos. Our guest is L.A. Mayor Eric Garcetti. You know, I think, uh, obviously, you're, as we said, your uh, father was the DA when O.J. was prosecuted, and he was acquitted, ultimately. Um, you were a young man at that time, so you weren't around. But what did you take from that in talking with him and observing it, you know, from afar? A few things. I mean, one was, again, just like with my grandfather, it's important to stand up for what you believe in, whether it's someone's innocence, someone's guilt, or the issues surrounding it, like domestic violence uh, in this case. Second was you have to, in politics, um, do more than just think you're doing the right thing. You have to be very aware of how you're communicating coming across. I remember that one day when he said, you know, OJ, turn yourself in. And people come up to me and say, God, your dad's a hard ass, isn't he? Like, he's like this tough prosecutor. I'm like, he's the most loving, like, hugging, beautiful father a person could ever have. And I know him in that personal way, but I realize people's perceptions come from maybe one moment in time. So when that camera is on, you better be aware. You better humanize who you are. You better not put on a show, but really find those opportunities like we have now to tell your story, to be honest, and never be afraid, one last thing, to say where well, you screwed up. I mean, my dad's now, uh, he put people on death row, 
And after he became, after he was district attorney, he realized it wasn't doing anything. It wasn't serving us. It wasn't serving the family's victims. And he became a very passionate uh, ex-prosecutor against the death penalty. So I've learned a lot of lessons from him to always question the way you're doing things, to always admit your mistakes, and to always look at trying to stand up for things even in the face of criticism. So you had, I think, um, always excelled in school and were a serious student. You played the jazz piano. Um, I see that piano over there. We might yeah, ask you to play. We might something. need a few play lines. Play you out of this uh, thing. New, new theme song. <laughs> we'll, get it for, we'll get you the sheet music. Okay. I mean, what, and then you went to Columbia University, mm -hmm. which is a very different experience than, probably yeah. than growing up in the San Fernando Valley. Yeah. Um, can you just talk about a little bit like what your college experience was like and what at that point you thought your mm. future would look like? Because I understand you were very serious into music at the time. Yeah, you know, I was composing musicals, uh, Rogers and Hammerstein and Hart. The only time the three of them wrote together and where they met was at Columbia when they were students, this thing called the Varsity Show. I was acting. I wanted to go to New York because I thought maybe I'd want to be an actor and I'd done some after school specials as a teenager. Um, on TV and you know that was a part of it but I stayed very engaged in human rights and the world and part of the reason I decided to go to New York is I couldn't imagine myself outside of a big city and I wanted to see that other big city and if you remember I got there in 1988 was there till 1993 those were really tough times in New York uh, Columbia likes to say it's in Morningside Heights but it's essentially Harlem and you would go a block away there were homeless folks there was needles in the park so I got very engaged with the issue of homelessness and housing founded actually with um, the later NAACP, uh, head of NAACP, Ben Jealous, one of my dear friends, uh, a Harlem Restoration Project, where we'd go in and actually build low-income housing in burned out former crack houses. And a combination of that and being in a city where the United Nations was and seeing the connection between international human rights and domestic, I pretty much knew by the time I graduated, as much as I loved music, I was probably gonna be heading into some sort of human rights work uh, in my life. Yeah, and it, it, I mean, it strikes me that you really were like that geopolitical frame was mm -hmm. really your early adult life. I mean, you taught, you studied yeah. abroad, you were a Rhodes Scholar. I mean, went to Ethiopia. Yeah. yeah, I went to Ethiopia. I lived in Burma. I worked with the rebels that were in Burma at the time, fighting for democracy and, and teaching in the jungle, in the middle of a war zone. And then went to Ethiopia, where I'd been as a teenager, where I'd done some relief work um, shortly thereafter in, in Eritrea in 1995 and 97, right after their independence, looking at issues of ethnicity and um, how do you kind of get the development of a community uh, that now has its independence. And, you know, it was funny when I came back and was teaching international relations and decided to run for city council because people said, well, right. aren't you doing this international stuff? And I, I said, have you looked at LA? Have you looked at California? We are international relations. Did you ever think of running for, you know, or doing something that would take you more in that direction? Yeah, I thought I would probably work maybe in diplomacy or international development. And having done enough of that, I came back to L.A. and fell back in love with the city. But I had been, even though I'd only been gone for uh, undergraduate and graduate school in New York and then England, um, after seven and a half, eight years, it was a new city to discover. And I lived in a new part of town with um, my now wife, uh, and we were dating at the time. She's from Indiana. And as I joke, this other foreign country called Indiana, she, <laughs> she was a real foreigner coming here. And she got involved working at the county department of of uh, public uh, social services um, and working on welfare issues and poverty. And I really fell in love with the city and realized the entire world was already here. I didn't need to seek it out there. And it makes me fluent when I'm in other parts of the world to have come from here right. and vice versa. It makes me feel very much at home and in the world when I'm in LA. I mean, 
LA is a million things, right? Mm-hmm. So like, I always laugh when people say, I don't like LA or whatever. It's like, <laughs> which, 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 which little part? piece? Yeah, find another one, you'll like it. <laughs> well, you mentioned your wife. I know you guys mm-hmm. met on the mm-hmm. plane ride over to be Rhodes yes. Scholars and um, you know your relationship progressed and then you guys ended up fostering a bunch of children and eventually mm-hmm. adopting your daughter, Maya? Mm-hmm. Is that, Maya, she's seven yeah. now? She's Eight? seven. Okay. Oh, seven and three quarters, as she remember. Oh, I hear that. I have a six and a half year old. Nice. She's like, it's six and two quarters. Um, Already teenagers. <laughs> What was that experience? I mean, first of all, I guess, did when she, it, it sounds to me like she initiated the fostering mm-hmm. conversation. Yeah. Was that something that came naturally to you? I mean, that's a big, yeah. it's a big thing to do. It's, it's the most wonderful thing I've done in my life. And I love that Amy wanted to do this. She grew up in a family with half and step and foster siblings. Um, she had kind of more of a hard knock upbringing than I did her. Um, Sometimes she had a single mother raising her, other times not great stepfathers. And um, I think for her, it was really important that uh, we help those kids that don't have homes. And I was game. I mean, I certainly led her on this pathway where she enthusiastically said, okay, you want to run for office? As crazy as that life is, she was 100% supportive and one of my you know, closest, if not the closest advisor I have on this, um, on, in this life. Secondly, she kind of was looking at um, the issue she was dealing with in welfare and realized that so much of this comes down to what we do early on in children's lives. Um, you know, we had a police officer that was recently killed in Los Angeles, just tragic, and I spent a lot of time with his family. He's the son of Mexican immigrants and just an American dream story. When we caught the person who we believe shot him, somebody who'd been in foster care. And that certainly doesn't excuse anything, but you can track back that the lack of family results in so many ills, whether it's people homeless on the streets, whether it's folks that are in prison serving time. Um, so we've been really proud to, and well, we don't go into detail about how many or what age of kids just to protect the privacy. We've, we've had a, you know, an experience from day one to late teenagers and um, really keep in touch as part of an extended family of this wonderful gift of being foster parents. Yeah. Apparently your wife uh, compares you to the character uh, on Wreckin' Park, uh, Leslie Nope. Uh, <laughs> no, no, well, what does that is. mean? No, oh, she she's is. Leslie. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. So, yeah, and what does that mean? Is. Well, I, she's this is uh, Amy, the Amy Poehler well, character, she, of course. Maybe she did. Suggest, uh, <laughs> I think she was talking about, about you. As... Just kind of, I think she might have. You're right. I, I think she thinks I'm an endless optimist. Um, <laughs> that you know, in the face of people yelling at you about something, you smile and say, hey, let's do something together. Let's figure out a way to move forward. Um, even though I'm from Los Angeles, I think she connected with that kind of Midwestern sensibility. For me, it's just this relentless optimism. It's what fuels me, as, as well as a resilience of knowing things don't change overnight. I govern not looking at the headlines of today or the criticisms of tomorrow. I think, where am I gonna be 10 years from now looking back on what I'm doing today, and did I do the right thing? I mean, uh, I think your critics might say there's a downside to that, too. Mm-hmm. I know you have been criticized as being risk-averse, being too much of a consensus builder, um, maybe not always willing to spend political capital. Like, do you think those are fair? No, I always reject them. I think those are the stupid criti- most stu- stupid criticisms because, first of all, I have stood up on plenty. You know, raise the minimum wage when even our own labor community and certainly our business community is saying, no, wait, or don't do it at all. Uh, the largest infrastructure initiative in American history times two with Measure M months before my reelection, putting everything on the line. I stand up and fight when I need to, but what I learned uh, on the city council for 12 years and a city council president, as much as some members of the media, some people in the public thirst for a fight and it fulfills them, People out there don't want to see blood spilled. They want to be served. They want their lives to be improved. They don't want it to be about the drama. I mean, look at the White House. You were reelected uh, with 81, I think, percent of the vote. Very low turnout, but nonetheless. Uh, and I'll then, 
You'll take it. Smart, <laughs> yeah. low turnout. Yeah. Yeah. Very smart, low very turnout. Well very well-informed uh, Very engaged voters. Uh, and which, because of a quirk, you, it's a five-year, I think, or five-and-a-half-year uh, term. And, you you know, you put your toes in the presidential sweepstakes water for a while. You went to South Carolina and other states. What were, like, what were, you, what were you thinking? What were you looking for yeah. when you were out there? You know, I, I truly believe that Washington was broken. And I think that it's America's local communities, 19,000 towns and cities, where solutions and democracy is still alive. And I also think that being mayor is a great training ground to be chief executive of the United States of America. I can say this now with not the self-interest because I'm not running, but for a number of the candidates who have been mayor and are mayors right now, um, you know Homeland Security because you deal with it every single day with a bigger a number of public safety officials than most of our national leaders. International trade, I run the largest port in the Americas. Um, energy policy and whatever the Green New Deal is going to be defined as, we have the largest municipal utility in America. The things that you want to have in a leader, I think, exist at that local level. And so um, I was intrigued by that. I did see that this was an extraordinary time in which we need to change the leadership in Washington but also that it can't just be against Trump. And I thought that local government, certainly here in LA, we have a vision of what America could be. But I also came to realize there is no way I can fulfill my, my deep responsibility to the people of LA and be on the campaign trail at the same time. I think if you're a senator, you can, uh, but you can't do that as a mayor. So let's finish this job, get a lot done that I still have to do, and life is long. Are you surprised that Pete Buttigieg, who has gotten caught in, caught up a bit with that police shooting in his uh, in his city, had to go back and kind of derail things for a while. I mean, are you surprised he's doing as well as he is? I mean, it's a hundred thousand people in that city. Not at all. At my press conference, when I said I wasn't running, they said, "Who should you keep your eyes out on?" I said, "Pete Buttigieg." Um, I mean, it's funny. We're both road scholars. We're both uh, veterans of Navy and military intelligence yeah, we didn't officers. Even talk about we that. both play the piano. You know, like was he Navy or Army? Navy. Uh, we are both Navy intel officers. We we have such a close kinship because of basically parallel lives. Right. He's like. Like the decade, I say he's the younger gayer Eric Garcetti, I mean, you know, <laughs> uh, and he is somebody who I just have tremendous respect for, along with Corey, who's a mayor. And you know, it's funny. Another Rhodes Scholar at, at Bernie yeah. uh, Sanders, like he launched his campaign the first time right in, in Burlington, showing something he had done as mayor. So I think mayors, uh, we get criticized, we get praised, but we have to do things. We can't just talk about it. And I think that's the big difference um, out there. All right, I want to talk about one thing. We have a few minutes left that you've been doing, which is um, a Green New Deal for Los Angeles. Yes. And I think that like this speaks to both um, the optimism you're talking mm -hmm. about and some of the on the ground real like political right. realities. So this is a a broad sort of an economic mm -hmm. environmental plan sets to out to make LA carbon neutral by 2050 yes. and benchmarks along the way. Um, and just this week, I believe, uh, this big solar project yes, did get approved mm -hmm. by the Department of Water and Power, right, yes. on Tuesday, yeah. Um, this would be the cheapest solar power in the U.S. Um, it, it came after several commissioners didn't weigh in before yeah. um, ostensibly for pressure from the union. Um, Maybe, or there was some question of whether we had checked out all the boxes okay. of consultation and we made sure we had, so that's how we got a unanimous But broadly, vote. you've gotten yep. a lot of pushback from IBEW, the local um, union, mm -hmm. around, you know, closing coal-fired plants. Mm -hmm. And I mean, to me, this just strikes me as sort of the crux of the challenge for Democrats when they talk about the environment and climate change is like how not to scare people, yep. essentially. Um, I guess to start, can you just talk about like what, what you think of the criticisms that sure. this is going to, you know, take away good-paying jobs and sort of result in a setback? Yeah. There are two things that are causing human beings' anxiety right now. One, will the world exist and be able to sustain life as we know it? And two, if it does, will there be a place in the future economy for me? Right. 
So these two things collide here together, but they shouldn't collide. And I'm very confident and very optimistic that they won't, even if you have growing pains along the way. The 2020s will either make or break human civilization as we know it. We have now made the promises. I founded climate mayors, 425 mayors across the country, Democrats and Republicans and independents, who have pledged Paris. I'm vice chair of C40, the global group. And at the local level, it's where we are getting that job done. And I think that we have to continue to say to folks, if you want a job, don't even look at this from the environment. This is where jobs are going to be. Let's figure that out together from Appalachia to Los Angeles. And secondly, imagine if we had a billion climate refugees. Imagine if what we saw in the floods, um, the destruction in the Bahamas, the fires here in California, every couple months, we can't live that way. My responsibility is to protect life, and I will never compromise on that. We are almost out of time. We'd like to end with something a little lighter than Green New Deal. Uh, but <laughs> no, that's important. It's it super ending, important. But, you know, yeah. the ending of human civilization. <laughs> you, uh, we see the piano in the corner. You're really into yeah. jazz. Uh, you're also an avid photographer. When's the last yeah. time you picked up a camera? And where do you go out and shoot? Now that it's my phone, it's mostly, uh, and thanks to Instagram, I've rediscovered love of photography. It's mostly through my Samsung that I take photographs. But I, I do take around uh, every so often. My dad's a really skilled photographer, so I'll go out with him Sometimes we'll photograph on the beach. We'll uh, look at, you know, Los Angeles is so dramatic at night when it lays out like a bed of jewels. Twilight in L.A. when the sky is still orange over the Pacific and the lights are coming up over this amazing basin. It is probably the most beautiful place on earth to shoot, and I can't take enough photos there. So um, to me, you know, there is something around every corner. And as mayor, I get to be on the stage. I get to have that perspective behind the scenes. And I love showing that to my Los Angeles and seeing my Los Angeles react. All right. Well, on that poetic note, Mary Garcetti, thank you so much for taking time thank to talk. You. It's a real pleasure. Great to have you in L.A. And that does it for this edition of Political Breakdown. It's a production of KQED Public Radio. Our producer is Guy Marzarati, and our engineer is Seal Muller. KQED's team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Lindsay, and Vinny Tong. I'm Marisa Lagos. You can find me on Twitter at mlagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. If you're listening on the radio, by the way, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and maybe review The Breakdown wherever you get your podcasts. That is a wrap for this week's Political Breakdown from KQED. We'll see you next time, everybody. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. 
And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.